Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm Jonathan Bowman-Perks and welcome back to my favourite time of the week. And as part of the Inspiring Leadership series, Professor Angus Lang recommended Kevin Roberts. And Kevin is the founder of Red Rose Consulting. He's the ex-CEO of Saatchi and & Saatchi. And he's done a whole variety of fascinating jobs in places like Gillette, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi-Cola, and written a number of books, including Love Marks, which a number of people said they've really enjoyed, and 64 Shots. So, Kevin, welcome to the series. Great to have you here. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Couldn't be happier. Good. And tell us, tell where you are at the moment. Which part of the world are you in now? I'm in Carefree, Arizona, uh, and it's kind of well-named. So we've been here since March 15. We looked at the world. You know, we have homes in New Zealand. We have homes in the Lake District in Grasmere in the UK. Um, in New York and in Arizona. And we felt from a perspective of, at that time, March 15, I was in the UK. And this to me looked like a 12 month deal. Okay, it looked like a 12 month deal. So my wife and I said, okay, where, where can we bunker down till this comes through and be effective, innovative, sane, safe, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we chose Arizona, the climate, you know, we've had 150, I don't want to rub this into people watching in the UK. We've had 150 consecutive days of sunshine and there's more to come. Uh, it's terrific for healthcare. I mean, we are really in a place in the US where you've got magnificent uh, healthcare facilities that are not overcrowded. Yeah, 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 yeah. We've got a lot of space, a lot of desert, the Sonoran Desert outside. So the bikes are up and at them. And we've got time zone compatibility. So you can work from here with the US obviously all day, with the UK and Europe in the mornings and with Australasia and Asia in the evenings. So I can run a business, frankly, uh, from here. Whereas in the other locations, a little tougher to run an international business. So we're in Arizona. Yeah, great. And of course, the obvious question that everybody's thinking about, who do you think is going to win uh, in the presidential election and in the two houses? It's going to be an incompetent in their late 70s. <laughs> and it will be either Dr. Evil or the man who can't remember who he is. So it'll be <laughs> one of those two. <laughs> Very nice. I love it. I love it. So the, the man you are today and all the experience that you've gained, take us, take us right back to, to the beginning. Just, I'm always interested in people's life stories. And the, I think there's a lovely book called Life is in the Transitions. And you learn most in the transition, a down or an up. Um, what sort of shaped you? And was it the parents? You know, what, what gave you this incredible drive to do the things you've done and still keep doing things? You know, you haven't... Uh... Uh, the absence of alternatives, right, focuses the mind. Uh, and, and, and I grew up with no alternatives. They're typical, you know, I'm, I'm a Lancastrian, you're a Yorkie. I don't hold that 
against you. I'm very glad that Leeds are back in the Premier League. And we all know the only good thing that ever came out of Yorkshire was the road to Lancashire. So we've got that out of the way. <laughs> uh, that's and the end uh, of the group. Uh, thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Shame I can't publish this one. What a pity. Never, it didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, so I grew up in a working class environment, lived in a council house, never had my own room, you know, shared my room with my brother until I was 16 and old enough. Uh, my parents, working class, my father was a um, security guard in a mental hospital, right? Uh, I, fo <laughs> I followed in his tracks by running Saatchi and Saatchi, which was almost like the same job description. But anyway, the, uh, my mother worked in a shop. We had no money. They're from big families. They both left school when they were 14. My father worked 12-hour shifts at the hospital, came home every night tired. They spent all their money on, on tobacco, right? Uh, cigarettes and, and pipes in that, in that time. And nobody in my council estate ever escaped. The only real escapes were uh, gangs or the odd one that got into semi-pro soccer or, or, yeah. or semi-pro cricket, right? There was no other way out. And where, where was I, this? Which, which city was this in? In Lancaster, which Lancaster. is a really yeah. good, good, good small, small, small city with a cathedral, terrific priory church, and two brilliant, well, actually three brilliant schools, Lancaster Royal Grammar School, Lancaster Girls Grammar, and Ripley St. Thomas. Really fortunate. Good, good cricket team, good rugby teams very close to, you know, Manchester, Liverpool, 20 miles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But this was a very working class thing. I ran away from home seven times, pretty unsuccessfully. I got as far as Manchester most times, right? When I was only seven, right? Eight, nine, and 10. Uh, uh, and realized that I didn't want to live this life. Now, my dad was from a very big family. We had pretty uh, uncomfortable relationships. I had ambition, they didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I was fortunate enough to go through the 11 plus system, get into Lancaster Royal Grammar School, got into the Alpha Stream where they fast track you, which I don't believe in actually at that age. I think you're, you're better with your peer group. Uh, I'm not a big fan, nonetheless. And from the age of seven, I was fortunate enough to, to captain every sports team I was involved in. So at seven, I was captaining the under 11s at, at soccer, the under 11s at cricket, which is, which is, um, it, which is sort of a great, a great thing to do because that age difference is pretty significant, right? And then uh, uh, as soon as I went to the grammar school, I captained the rugby team, captained the cricket team, blah, 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 blah. But at 17, as I was, you know, just in the middle of A-levels and, and playing a lot of cricket, playing a lot of rugby, et cetera, et cetera, I was doing um, English, French, Spanish, and Latin at A-level. Latin's a really useful thing not to do. But anyway, there you go. I was kind of enamored with the great stories of war and gore and the great philosophy stories. And I had a great teacher, right? So even though it's sort of idiocy, it... And I fooled myself. Stay with that a minute. Stay with that a minute, Kevin. I mean, it's, it's very interesting. In some ways, isn't that what leaders have to do? They're storytellers. They, they add emotion to facts. And, and even if you're in such and such, you're trying to make a story about something where people, they buy into it. And, and 
wasn't that from those early days? That teacher was giving you a story that inspired, wasn't it? Uh, you, you, I mean, it's, it's, it's as if you knew them and me. Uh, you know, you, you run through some pretty average teachers, pretty average commanders, pretty average leaders, and then you have some standouts. And I had a couple of standouts, a guy called Jim Bates, who taught me Latin, and a guy called Peter Sampson, with whom I'm still super friendly, who, who taught me English. He was the first gay guy I'd ever met in Lancaster. I, we didn't have them then, I don't think. Or, and I only knew he was because he wore a salmon pink tie and somebody told me that's what gay people wore rather than a black. Anyway, the guy's a brilliant, brilliant guy. And he gave me all these books. He, he somehow got me six library tickets. So I read a book a day. Wow. From Lancaster Library, one book per day. And Peter just kept giving me all the classics of the 60s, you know, the Alan Silito books, the John Brain books, the books that made a difference culturally. Anyway, all was going well, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then- uh, Can I just stay with that? Because that is so interesting. Um, I, I was told I was thick at school and I was going to be a dustman. I was in Halifax, so just over the border, as you know. Well, luckily the army stepped in. Thank God. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize I was dyslexic. So actually, my way of learning now, I'm catching up. I like, uh, I'll read 60 books a year, but they're, I'm listening to them on a podcast, whether it be, Fantastic. you know, a whole range of anything on neuroscience or, or Hindu religion or just, that's my way of doing it. But, but you did it early on, and it's no doubt about it that people's absorption of knowledge and other alternative things broadens the mind. I mean, that must have been a major oh. contributor to your leadership. Uh, you know, I, I think knowledge, it's KSA, right? Knowledge, skills, attitude. And you can't be deficient in any of those to succeed, right? So you've got to get knowledge. I went sort of uh, very choiceful, right? So, so mathematically, I'm sort of average. Scientifically, I'm poor. But in terms of stories, right? You know, I remember reading, you know, Virgil the Aeneid in, in the original, right? And, and there's lines in there like, the gods first make bored those whom they wish to destroy. Uh -huh. and, 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 and you read lines like that, and you shiver, right? Because, and then Peter Sampson introduced me to all the Liverpool poets at the time, Roger McGuff and all these guys. And so you suddenly understand the world. So I understand the world through the spoken word and, and through the written word. Yeah. Anyway, I, I uh, at the age of 16, uh, I was having a, I was, I was loving the sport and I was loving um, the story shelling telling culture. I was loving the, the ethos of the school, which was praesis ut prosis. We talked about this, which means lead that you might serve, right? The school's 550 years old. And I loved the idea of leadership, but really using leadership to serve the community, to serve a purpose, to serve what you believe. That was drummed into me at school, not by rote, but by example, right? So it was pretty good. Anyway, at that age, I, I was uh, very interested in girls. My testosterone levels were the same level as any red-blooded, you know, 16-year-old yeah. boy in Lancashire. You're I don't know. Pretty cold. I, I think it's kind of uh, what they call uh, 
uh, a TMV, a timeless male value. So I suspect that we all may be able to, I only remember them now a little foggily, okay? But I do remember them. Anyway, so I fell in love with this girl. She was at the girls' grammar school. And uh, I was fortunate enough to persuade her to, uh, you know, do the deed with me. We only did it twice, okay? She became pregnant because I hadn't paid any attention. I knew a lot about how frogs reproduced. But oh, at the grammar school, oh. boys only, we didn't do humans. How old were you? 16. Wow, wow. And you did the right thing from a working class background in Lancaster. You married the girl if she was pregnant. There was no uh, second thoughts. Her school, Lancaster Girls Grammar, were very open to that. My headmaster said, you can't do that. You can't marry. You're making a critical mistake. You've got a great career in front of you. You're going to be an English teacher or a French teacher or some stuff. I'm going to come back to the grammar school and teach. And you're going to play cricket professionally and you know all this stuff. So you cannot possibly marry her. And I said, and the guy was from Cambridge, the headmaster at the time. I said, listen, that's how you might do it down south. But that's not the way we do it up here, up north. You know, I've got to marry her and I can still go to school because I'll get a job in the evening, right? And he said, no, it's either you stay at school or you, you get married. You, you can't do both. And he wow. took my first 15 jersey away from me. Wow. Which was pretty average, right? Anyway, so I left school. So... Uh, and I've now gone back, okay, and I've been on the board of governors at the school for the last seven years. And part of my roles is to vet and appoint the new headmasters. <laughs> so, the empire, Jonathan, strikes back. You do remember that. But it, it just uh, for one moment, thinking about on the other side of the, uh, the Pennines in, in Halifax, come all El or Halifax, the good Lord deliver us. And the reason was that we were the last two towns to have gibbets and hang people so you didn't want to be found in hall or halifax because uh that was the end of it are they still doing that there i think they still are yeah it's, it's <laughs> good on them perhaps you should spread it throughout the country and uh my uh, great-grandfather was a uh, governor and they had a guy who climbed up the clock tower and had, had done a, a graffiti symbol i don't know it might have banned the bomb or something on the on the clock tower it would have been not that it would have been something else and they were all for getting rid of him. And he said, no, 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 he'll be great. He's got great initiative, get him to join the army. And he went <laughs> had a great career in the army. Fantastic. So perhaps they yeah. should have had someone who saw your potential. Anyway, you found your own. And there were, there were lots of teachers or three of them, Doug Cameron, the cricket coach, who I've stayed, they've all remained big friends and mentors throughout my life. And so we just had, uh, the headmaster and I, had a personality clash, right? I had one and he didn't. There you go. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. What is it? Um, was it Disraeli about Gladstone uh, or something similar? Uh, a very humble man with much to be humble about or something. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. They must have known the headmaster. Yeah. yeah. Good. So, okay. So you, you, so that's where it started, right? So, you know, the absence of alternatives focuses the mind. So I had to go to work because I had no money. I had no connections. I had no education. And I had a wife and a baby. Right. Uh, aged just under 17. 
So I took four jobs, right? So as you do, I mean, I had an alternative, four jobs simultaneously. I worked in the pub in town, the Lancastrian, where all the teachers used to drink. Wow. And I was the barman. And I had, therefore, complete total power on all kinds of stuff, <laughs> as, as you might imagine. The ones that I liked and the ones that I didn't rate. Yeah, and there were different ways of serving drinks to those two categories of people. So I worked every evening there, pound a night. How did you spike the ones you didn't like? What was the, what was the, the tactic? Well, the, there, I'm, I know you're aware of the extreme yes. tactic. Yes, yes. Yeah. that was only used in extreme uh, circumstances. But there were certain, I didn't have any uh, mind altering drugs, unfortunately, because that would have been very, very uh, tempting. But cayenne is a beautiful thing. Really? Oh, yeah. Mm. All right. Mm. Adds a certain bit of spice to the digestive tract about an hour later. Oh, no. no. And we also had a, yeah, yeah. Well, we had a powder that was quite diuretic. Oh, no. And tasteless. That's so hard, so cruel. Uh, anyway. Yeah. Uh, so that was in the evening. Um, I got a job at the, the only sort of international business in town where in Lancaster, uh, this, these guys made um, uh, plastics contact, which was that self-adhesive stuff you put on shelves and all that kind of stuff. Very big brand. I remember and contact. The, and, yeah. yeah, contact. And they made decorine, which was vinyl wall covering, blah, 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 blah. And they had an export department where no one spoke anything but English. So I rock up full of A-level French and Spanish and they think I'm, uh, you know, this is some strange creature from the netherworld that's going to take us all over the world with contact. And of course it was, you know, the theory of the low-hanging fruit, right? And, and, and within th three months, they doubled my salary. Within six months, they gave me a car. I couldn't drive, but they gave me it anyway, and I still <laughs> couldn't drive. So it sat there, right? And, and, uh, uh, and uh, I built our business in, guess where? France, Belgium, and Spain. <laughs> and uh, we did real well. So that was my daytime. You didn't find the, the, uh, the Latin any use? Sadly, <laughs> no, I haven't used it at all then, except with Manchester City, I was very uh, pleased. We have a, uh, a uh, superbia in prolio is our uh, kind of focus, and it means pride in battle. So I still can recognize, <laughs> I, I look very flash when I go to the Etihad and, and say that to people. Okay, they're like, wow, this guy's really uh, worldly. Yeah, 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 very, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Apart from that, I've not used it. Which um, which Cambridge College were you at? I wasn't. No. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. I was at Stories of Lancaster, mate. Anyway, there. And then I had a job at the weekends uh, carrying bricks, which was my best paying job, you know, a hard on a building site with a bunch of Irish people, which was absolutely fantastic uh, in terms of fun, humor, physicality. 
And then I played uh, semi-pro cricket where I got boot money for, for showing up and collections for 50s. And so I made sure I scored a lot of 50s, right? Because wow. you could make three quid, right? Which was a lot of money. Three days pay. Yeah. So what I learned there really was hard work, right? Just, just hard work, focus, commitment, discipline, focus, commitment, discipline, stay focused. You got to make money to pay the rent, look after the kids, stay disciplined, right? Don't mess about, don't waste the dough and stay committed to what you're trying to do, right? Start with the answer and work back. And, and my answer was to get my wife and my kid out of Lancaster and into London, where at that time in the 60s, that's where, you know, the rainbow and the pot of gold were. Yeah, wow. And looking back at your young 16-year-old self, if it wasn't focused, discipline and hard work, what, what other bit of advice would you have given your young, your young self there with a wife and a baby? Well, what I've given my kids, right? I've got how many kids? Well, we have six now and eight grandkids. And I tell all of them, right, start with the answer and work back. You've got to figure out what to do before you figure out how to do it, right? If you go to the Etihad and you go into Pep Guardiola's office, there's a whiteboard there and it's in Catalan, which I don't speak, but it's close enough to Spanish that you can understand it. And what it actually means is first, you have to know what to do. Then you have to know how to do it. And I think, you know, the great generals that, that you've worked with and that I admire from afar, they've always been the big on the what. The yes. how, the tactics, you can figure that out. Yeah, right? well, I'd even build on that with their advice to me, which is always a bit like Viktor Frankl, man's search for meaning. He who has a clear burning why right. will know what and how. And the people who know the people who know what to do will always work for the people who know why. And so there's, right. always, there's the third bit, isn't there? That if you've got the why at the beginning of the life meaning and living a life of purpose, then you have the begin with the end in mind. What is it you want to achieve, but then work backwards. I, I think that's great advice. And I haven't got, as, or not at the age of 16, I hadn't got really through to the why. The why for me was to avoid a life of poverty and no hope, right? That, that's why I had to do this. I wanted to make a difference. Now my personal purpose is to, not dissimilar, I suspect to yours, to inspire everyone I touch to be the best they can be. That's why I'm here, right? To, to, to share what I hope will help others not be the best I want them to be, but be the best they can be, right? So I think that's what I, what I tell my kids, right? Because the, everybody seems, I mean, if we look at the US and indeed the UK now, perhaps even France uh, and, and certainly, you know, Spain and so on, I'm not sure that our politi political leaders are very big. They're not terribly purpose-driven. No. It, it, it does not appear to me. It's all about tactics, confrontation, conflict, power. It's all hard power and no soft power. Yeah, yeah. And, and this comes back to the, I suppose it's a military analogy of 
tempo, being able to move at speed in one direction and then being able to change quickly wow. without losing momentum. But because you know the end state, you know, that, that this is the bigger game that you're playing for. And even in when we learned mission analysis um, from the Russians and, and, and the best of the German generals, it was this idea of this is the effect I want you to achieve. How you do it, up to you. But this is the effect. Just, just right. happen on the way. You work it out, but you know, ultimately, that's what you need to have achieved by the end of it, the effect in the environment you're in. Could, that, I mean, if you don't know where you're going, all roads will take you there, right? So it's hopeless, absolutely hopeless. And we've, we've done some work, you know, leadership, not with, um, you know, the standing army or whatever you guys call that stuff. I apologize if I don't have the lingo right. But we've done some work with some special forces in, in the US and New Zealand and, and Navy SEALs and stuff like that. And the biggest thing I learned from them was this approach they had of adapt, improvise, overcome. Yes. Adapt, improvise, overcome. My God, you know, in this VUCA world that we live in now, these crazy, which I think came out of West Point, the whole concept yeah. of VUCA, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. Volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. But in this world that we live in, adapt, improvise, overcome. And I think to be able to do that, you've got to know what the purpose is and you've got to know the what and the why, right? Exactly. And then adapt, improvise, overcome. Well, that's what was always so good in what we called mission analysis. You analyze the mission you've got. And so if the situation changes, what does that mean for two levels up, one level up, my part in their plan? And so you're constantly... Okay, situations change. So what does this mean now? Friendly forces, enemy forces, the environment, what's going on? But we still got the overall vision and the end state right. of how it should be. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's very, very good. Yeah, I really, really relate to that. And so, yeah, what would be the bit of advice you would have given yourself back there, the, the young 16-year-old? Anything else? Any other advice that, like, you've given to your, your own children? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Make happy choices. Hmm. Say more. Make, you know, you can't make other people's choices. Don't let them make yours, right? So the last choice somebody made for me was when the headmaster kicked me out. Ever since then, I said, no one, no one is going to control my destiny ever again. And wow. no one is going to. So I'm going to make happy choices. And I don't, that's what I learned. And I, it's my focus, I don't know how many years later, 50 yeah. something years later, right? But, but I'm, I'm sure with all that reading a book a day and, and some of the great classics, I, I've really, I'm only 58 now, but I've really come with all the mistakes I've made in my life and the blunders I've had and the setbacks and being in a, in a, in a difficult marriage and then a divorce after 23 years. Now I'm happily remarried and I found my soulmate, but, <laughs> going through separation divorce was, I think, one of the hardest things I've been through. And I found now Stoic philosophy, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, Seneca, I can control the controllables. I can control my own thoughts and my own actions. The rest of it is beyond, beyond, I, I just, I can't control that. So, so control the controllables, does that resonate for you? I use control the controllables all the time, right? All the time, manage the unavoidable, avoid the unmanageable. Okay, oh, I control love the controllables, right? Control the controllables. 
right? The rest, you know, if you can change it, change it, right, D.H. Lawrence, and if you can't change it, don't worry about it. All you got to do is look to look at history, apply your own purpose and sense of self and massive self-awareness, right? First, know thyself, get self-awareness, right? Poof, and then execute. It's the whole power of three, assess, decide, execute, assess, decide, yeah. execute, right? And, and the, even as you know, because- The loop, the, 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 the loop. Observe, yeah. orientate, decide, act. Observe, orientate, decide, act. And that came from the Korean War when the, the American fighters were getting shot down by the Chinese ones. And I they... just did a podcast last week for the Uda Loop. Okay, well, fantastic. I did an hour's podcast for them last week. You go online and have a look at it because I, I think you'll... Send it. It's just the whole Uda stuff, right? Oh, my, it... my take on that is there's one extra step in it that they have and I use it in... So I use AID, ADE, assess, decide, execute. But the important thing, as you say quite rightly, it's not sequential and it isn't linear. It is a loop, a constant loop. Just like now, you know, Jonathan, we're in a world where every company you talk to, the framework we've developed is survive, revive, thrive. I like survive, it. revive, thrive. Survive, revive, thrive. You've got to survive the next 12 months, you know, this is half time now. The second half, you know, this started March 15. It's going to be the end of March before Gen Pop is vaccinated, right? So is we're halfway through. Can I just, just, I, was, I heard you mention it before. You went back to March 2015. No, March 15 of this year. Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, I, I was going to say, yeah, March 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, everything changed from March 15, yeah, yeah. So we're now halfway through that. How it's going to go? Where, where do you see it going? And the and the kind of the kind of way we need to live now, because this is not going to pass quickly. Get over it and adapt, as you say, to uh, and, and improvise and overcome. So, what kind of world do you see people, the smart ones, quickly realizing what it's like? How are they running their lives and their businesses? Do you think? Yeah. I th so I think, you know, you're running it in these three buckets of survive, revive, thrive. Okay. Job number one is to survive. Uh, and that's really, we have, this is half time, right? It's, it's October 22. It's going to be, we're going to be, vaccines going to be pretty broadly available, at least throughout the Western world by the end of March through the end of next year, we're going to have got this madness controlled from a health point of view. So this is right now, this thing couldn't be more timely because it's half time. And, and you know what it's like when it's half time on a sporting field, you go off the field, you're tired, you're fatigued, you're anxious, you're worried, you're hurting, you're bruised, but you've survived. You're not six nil down unless you're Liverpool against Aston Villa, but you're not, you know, you're not down like that. You've done some good stuff. You've seen some weaknesses in the opposition, right? You sit down, show my age, you have an orange slice. In your case, you have a Gatorade or whatever. Then the coach comes in and gives you the, ooh, ooh, you know, all or nothing rev up. And then you take time to reflect you gird your loins and you go again. Yes. Right. And that's where we are now because we're going to face the second wave. We're going to face a cold, dark, 
winter, we're going to face irrational tactical government. I don't want to use the word initiative because they're not very initiative oriented, are they? Reactions. Yeah. Okay. And we're going to go again. Then when we come through this and we have the safety of this health, we have in front of us a world which will have mental health problems. Your wife will know all about the problems that are not being reported in terms of domestic violence. Okay, mm -hmm. there's a real sleeping, sleeping bear there, right? Obviously the worst recession you and I have ever known. Yeah. Unemployment levels that are very difficult to comprehend. Social issues from the 60s have been rebirthed through inept leadership, um, largely in the United States, and which are festering and burning. We've got the rise and rise of extremism, nationalism, populism, sort of the imminent threat to the end maybe of the American dominant civilization, yeah. the rise and rise of China. Yeah. All this stuff is in front of us, right? So, and that's going to be a five-year marathon. This is not a two-year, three-year instant gratification fix. So to get through that, as we think about survive, revive, thrive, being a loop that you may be thrown back into survival by any of those factors, yeah. Yeah, we're going to need leadership that I think will transform and it will be driven by two core characteristics, caring and demanding, caring and demanding because we're gonna to have to care for our people who are emotionally very vulnerable. They're suffering through all the five stages of grief, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and facing all these terrible external risks. And yet we're gonna to have to demand, we're gonna to have to create a culture going forward of more with less, more with less. We are all gonna to have to become blue ocean companies. What do you mean by a blue ocean company? where we have to learn how to eliminate, reduce, raise, and create. So what can we eliminate from our daily process? Right? We've got to stop swimming in this blood of this red ocean of blood, mainly our own blood, and swim into a blue ocean full of blue skies and happy things, right? So we've got to know what to eliminate from our daily lives. We must have learned from this crisis where we have to review the whole concept of having living in London or living in Lancashire or going to work or bringing the work to us. We have to find what I'm calling the new way forward. And that isn't just about working from home. It's about how do we learn from this crisis, make happy choices, become happier, ergo ipso facto, become more efficient because happy bunnies work 30% harder than unhappy bunnies. You know that, right? You know that. And we've now learned some things from this, right? The office is such an antiquated idea now. In New Zealand, we have obviously the Maori who have their uh, marae. Here in Arizona, we have the Pima Indian and the Hopi Indian. And these guys understand what an office should be. Their community halls, they have four things. The Maori talk about, we're here to meet, to see, 
listen and speak in that order. We meet, see, listen, speak. I love it. The, the Pima Indian have the whole notion of the talking stick where the leaders come round and sit round in a circle and he who has the talking stick, the toku toku, they call it in New Zealand, can talk. Everybody else meets and listens and you only talk. So, in, so there are no desks in a marae. There are no desks in a, a Hopi Indian uh, come together because desks are barriers. Offices in London, they, 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 they look like prisons and they fear whether they have table tennis tables or drink machines or not, right? And everybody's got their headphones on and their screens up. Now, I think going forward, we're going to have to, the office should look like an extension of your living room where you can meet, come together, look, listen, help, create, collaborate, connect, do all the good stuff, but then go home, set up your tech so that you can focus single-mindedly with your spouse, with your new puppy, with all this kind of stuff, put your headphones on, Zoom, and find a third place, whether that's your club, your car, Soho house, anything. You can go into Langdon's Brasserie now, buy it and save it from you know destruction. You can uh, do it in a Starbucks. You can, doesn't matter, but get out into this third place. And then we're going to have to really make that uh, personalized because one size will not fit all. So I think these challenges, and in fact, I want to, you know, you mentioned to me other leaders that can come on. And one of the leaders I'm going to recommend is a lady called Nikki Gray who runs HR for the whole of Fremantle, one of the biggest TV production companies. England's Got Talent, Britain's Got Talent, X Factor, and all this stuff. Nikki's been, you know, working for the Daily Express and big Tate and Lyle or whatever, big stuff, but at Fremantle Creative Company. And she's developed this whole idea of personalized work where you're going to have a menu of where you work and how you work. But it isn't about the future of work. It's really about, and it's not life-work balance, which I think is a crock of weakness and moderation. This is about being the best you can be when work plays between 50 and 65% role in your life, right? So I think that's in front of us. I'm sorry, Jonathan. No, no, no. Uh, it, it, it got so many thoughts going on in my mind. Uh, one was that um, I've been very influenced by an American lady called Nancy Klein, K-L-I-N-E. I don't know you come across her, but her book is called Time to Think and then More Time to Think. And then the latest one that's coming out this month, I think, is The, the Promise, which is that I won't interrupt you. Uh, and it really fits with the meet, see, listen and speak of the Maoris. And my family lived for a year in, uh, no, for a generation in New Zealand. My, my father was born out there with his uh, twin sister. Uh, and so even though I haven't been to New Zealand, one day I do want to go um, and I will travel again, I'm sure, when the time is right. But, but she really has taught myself and my wife, Lee, all about this creating strategic time to think where how far can you go in your thinking before I interrupt and think for you? And then how much further than that can you go before I 
interrupt and think for you. It's really good. The idea of, of having your turn, but knowing that, that you won't assault my thinking by interrupting. You'll let me do my finest thinking. And you listen to ignite rather than listen to respond, which is what you've done for me. You've ignited my thinking. Thank you. I do a whole session on active listening, which, and one of those things is don't interrupt. I was talking, uh, I, I work with Oxford University, the foundry on their uh, uh, startup incubators, and I'm advising eight of their startups this year. And, and, and uh, I talked to one of them yesterday, a doctor, and he told me, and, and they're trying to uh, automate through AI and machine learning uh, doctor-patient reaction so that you can give the doctors more time not to be talking to you and you not wasting your time going to the doctor, right? And he said that the, all the stats say doctors interrupt a patient after 11 seconds. Yeah. 11 seconds. Yeah. If I want your opinion, I'll give it to you. Shut up. Yeah, right. Uh, right. it's, uh, there's another lovely guy uh, not far from the New, New Zealand link, Oscar Trimboli is a fellow coach and he's written a little book called Deep Listening. Uh, and he talks about the five levels of listening, which I really enjoy. But he, he, he did the research and he found that only 2% of us actually get trained in listening, but it's 50%. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody gets trained in selling skills, negotiation skills, the art of persuasion, the ways to close, listening skills, hopeless, hopeless. I did some work with the FBI uh, interrogation, hostage interrogation team. These guys, you know, they are experts in active listening, under pressure, you know, teacup and all that stuff. And they've got all the body language assessment and all this kind of, kind of stuff. And they are brilliantly, and their own body language they're aware of, because as you know, most people are completely hopeless on their own body language, not too good on other people's as well. Oscar Tremboli, I think that is one of yeah. the best names I ever heard. It's great. I think that <laughs> no, it's a this, brilliant name. Coming back to people, though. Um, so you, the, the, the leaders who've inspired you that you recommend that they should share their wisdom on this series. And I'm very grateful to you. Nikki um, is one. Who would be the other two that you'd, you, you had another couple that you're thinking of? Cecile Frocoutas and Cecile... F-R-O-T, and then new word C-O-U-T-A-Z. She runs YouTube for Europe, Mideast, and Africa. She's the most stylish French woman, you know, Catherine Deneuve style, but younger. Brilliant, multilingual, worked in the US, has run big companies, and is she should be running the BBC, frankly. She should be running the BBC. She is an inspirational leader of creative people. Very high IQ, high EQ, high TQ, technology quotient, and high BQ, bloody quick. That's so rare. she's That's so rare. Yeah, like, like unbelievably rare, right? Yeah. So Cecile Frocoutas should be yeah. someone, uh, she, she would bring you would you would you would really like her. She's really oh, great. No, those sounds great. And and the third one, who would be the third? Yeah, guy I went to school with, Brian Ashton. Brian Ashton coached uh, England rugby to the World Cup final in two thousand and seven when he had a crap team, 
and he took them all the way to the final. He was the attack coach under Sir Clive Woodward when England won the World Cup with the Johnny Wilkinson drop goal in 2003. He um, was the coach at Bath when Stuart Barnes and Jeremy Guscott turned the world upside down. He's a school teacher by background, Stonyhurst College, professional good cricketer, but he has revolutionized rugby coaching. He, it's, he has it all down on one manifesto now on one page. He is all about playing the game. It's all about mindset. It's all about playing as if you're a school kid again. He's, he is, and he's not written a book. And I've been hammering him for, he was four years ahead of me at school. So he's my little hero when I was like 12 and he was 16. And we've, we're, we have become best friends over the years. And uh, he also got kicked out of Lancaster Grammar. In 550 years, only two boys have been expelled, Brian and I. You must have a special board. In it is, and we've, it is, and we're actually we're both on the Distinguished Students Board. It's really funny. They've put us up there laterally, okay? But we are part of the Black Sheep Club. Yeah, that's great. And we have only two members. And the qualifications, so when we go to all the school events, we have a special Black Sheep tie and a special Black Sheep blazer which we wear with pride. Uh, and the, the qualifications are you have to have been expelled from school, number one. And number two, you have to have become world-class, world-class in your ex-school life. Now, that is really interesting because I'm a great believer that everybody has these CVs and these bios they write and, and they just seem perfect. And you go like, how can I even speak <laughs> to this person? Because, like, you know, if he was a military guy, what was the rest of the British Army doing when he was saving Western Europe against... <laughs> you know, and, and there's this perfect, polished CV. I think we should should write the CV of your fuck-ups and blunders. And it's, it's a long list of, I didn't get this, like, for example, me, you know, like, uh, I didn't get promoted on the first, second or third time to Lieutenant Colonel, and so I had to leave the Army. But thank God I did, because I wouldn't be interviewing you now. Or, you know, at school, I, I was really hopeless at this, or I was called Stone Age Perks because with my father being killed when I was three, we had no money, we lived in a caravan. And so all my clothes came from the Stone Age, they said to me at school, because they were passed on from four other boys before I got them. But, you know, you, you write down all the things you got wrong, or I didn't get this, or I didn't go to Oxford, but I eventually came up this way, because I think learning from vulnerability and failure is so important. And if you were thinking about some of the dark moments during your later career in life, personally and work, what would they be, the things you didn't get and you didn't achieve or it fell apart and it didn't work out, but that you probably learned the most from it? Well, I think the best person to ask that is Brian Ashton. When he gets on, you nail him on that stuff because he's had some real real good dark moments <laughs> in sport and in life and in all kinds of stuff. He's one of those guys, right? He started losing his hair when he was like 24, 25, which is a really disastrous thing at that time in your life. But he's, had, he's got some great, uh, great... Now you're doing, yeah. what, you're doing what you said I'm doing. You're avoiding it. You, you haven't told me your Yeah, I'm, I'm buying time. And I'll tell you why, because it's really a fascinating thing, right? I have somehow 
subconsciously, not consciously, subconsciously, build up a wall of not, don't let the old man in, don't let the failure in. All right. But can so you, I've been trying to buy time to think of how to answer that question. Yeah, and but, but it's about being able to, appropriately vulnerable. Yeah, so I, I got to go away, Jonathan, not ducking you. I'm going to thank you for giving me the question. And I'm going to think deeply about that for myself. I want to read your, I your a, CV. Will you send it to me? Your alternative yeah. on a page. Your alternate CV. I will. And, and, I will. It, and I'm impeccable with my word. So I will. The, thing, the things you didn't get and what yeah. it taught you. What no, you I got it. I got it. I got it. Yeah. I got okay. it. I think it could be no, a really big fine. page. Let's come back to um, talk about some inspiring leaders. Um, uh, what about proudest moments in, in your life, in your career, personally and work wise? The things you, you really, because you have achieved a lot. What would you. So yeah, no, nothing on that. I, I, I never look back, right? I mean, I, I one of the, I mean, I've done, I've had some experiences I really enjoyed, right? I won. I was lucky enough, you know, when, when I was running Saatchi and Saatchi, I was the global CEO for, for 17 years or something. And Saatchi and Saatchi might not have been the biggest advertising agency in the world, but it was probably the most famous. It was the only one your mum would have heard of, right? Uh, because of the two brothers who went before me, Maurice and Charles, working with Margaret Thatcher and so on. We worked with Tony Blair, then we worked for Gordon Brown and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and we really, our, our inspirational dream was to be revered as a hothouse for world-changing creative ideas. So it's an exciting place to be. And, and, and our whole spirit, which, we, which I have throughout all my homes, was nothing is impossible. Nothing is, nothing is impossible. And... Uh, during all that time with these creative people, ideas, 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 we just never looked back. It was always about moving forward. It was always about what's next. It was always around not done yet. Because of Saatchi, I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with inspirational people. And a couple of them were unusual, I think, and that not many people agree with me on them anyway. So. I, I spent a fair bit of time working with Colin Powell when oh, I love Colin Powell. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he and I, uh, we, we were on this kind of thing with the world economic forum and the world of business where we spoke a lot. So we spent a lot of time in green rooms together and we, we had a couple of dinners just, just together. And Powell was, I mean, he, well, I think he would have been a magnificent president of the United yes, States. President, they actually had, they, should pro, huh? they should have had him as a president. He would have been fabulous. I understand from him that his wife vetoed it. Yeah. yeah. That she didn't want that any more public life after all the Bush, Cheney, Rumsfeld. Yeah. Um, in fact, stuff. it's a small world because my ex-wife, uh, her, her parents were in Kansas, uh, in Fort Leavenworth, and they live next door to um, to to your man and his family, and they they went into their house. Uh, the children swapped, yeah, out, and they were a lovely family. Um, yeah, but they were very private, so they had the public rooms, 
There you go. There's where the private rooms and no one went in there. That the, there you go. Was Colin Powell's wife was very protective of their privacy. Spot on. Well, that's that's what he told me, right? So that would make sense. That would make sense. But he would have been great, and, and given his age profile, he probably could run now too, because that seems to be the the kind of prime criteria. Anyway. He, he said one thing, which you probably heard, I don't know if you have or not, but he said perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. Yes. Perpetual optimism is a force multiplier. And I've always positioned myself as a radical optimist. And uh, therefore, I don't spend a lot of time looking, looking back and, and, and thinking about, and maybe it's a weakness that you don't celebrate your successes, okay? So I, I can't really answer your question very well. He said something else too, which uh, just on the topic of power, which really made an impact on me. Don't let adverse facts get in the way of the right decision. Yeah. I thought that was shit, man. That's really wise because I'd been brought up with Harold Janine and Jack Welsh as a kid where it was facts, 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 facts. And I'm a big believer in the facts, right? Give me the facts, give me the data. But that's, I, he made me feel pretty average. <laughs> he uh, says, no. yeah. You see, you've been lucky that you've um, chosen to surround yourself with an army of giants who all are specialists in their own areas or, or, or fascinating people. But one of the great things about when you, was it when you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him, I think the book's called. And one of the things, there's no such thing as great men. And there isn't, we've all got feet of clay. Um, but I'm very interested in, as we look back on our lives, we do certain things. And now with the wisdom of facts, we know some of the things are wrong. I'm reading a book at the moment called Food Fix, which is about, and I recommend it, which is about the environmental impact of industrial big food and big agriculture and how it's actually much more damaging, certainly to America, than any of the cars, planes, trains, and boats. Uh, and, and, but no one's challenging them. You know, the environmental lobbies, they don't, they don't challenge the, the food lobby and they don't challenge big farming. But we've got the same people, people drinking their sugar when you were years in, some years in PepsiCo, yeah. and telling us like smoking, you know, it's part of a healthy balanced start. We now know it's yeah. why America's so obese and yeah. why every country that gets the sad, the standard American diet is getting obese. But we've got this, but no one's challenging it. And it's so controlling, so lobbying, the dollars that are poured in by these big companies. You know, what you say now, knowing that you were, you were fighting for that then, what you know now, what can we do about this obesity problem, which is costing trillions of dollars? And if we could give healthy food as a pill or as a, uh, instead of doctors appoint them eating good food rather than getting more drug companies making money by trying to fix the painting the tree green when it's dying, when we'd have a better problem. I don't know, it's a big issue, but I just- It is. Thoughts were. I just did some, uh, uh, some work with a sustainability company in, uh, in Australia. And I said, what you've really got to do on this is you've got to create a movement of belief without sacrifice because people have now become so self-serving. They're not willing to give up to, 
to save the planet. They're willing to save the planet and say all the good stuff as long as they don't have to wear hemp. But they ain't gonna wear hemp. They are gonna, they're not gonna give up taste. So if you're gonna take away sugar, then Diet Pepsi, Diet Coke, Coke free has got to taste just as good, just as good. If you're gonna take away packaging, then the no packaging option cannot be ugly, tasteless and Amazon, right? So, so for us to do more with less, not only is that a leadership uh, mindset, it's got to be a total consumption mindset. But we're not willing to give stuff up. You know, when, when the circuses were going south, right, and, and nobody was making money, and uh, along came Guy Liliberté and introduced Cirque du Soleil and changed everything, right? So we didn't have elephants and we didn't have tigers and they didn't go on the road, but we didn't give up entertainment and we didn't give up the spectacle and we didn't give up the sociability. He enhanced all that. Mm. So I think the sustainability crew are, are, are barking up the wrong tree in appealing to our good goodness. We are pretty corrupt and feet of clay, as you say. Yeah. So what we've got to do on sustainability is to wrap it up into a mindset of we are going to ask you to deliver more by using, consuming, thinking about less. We've got to make it attractive and appealing. Very interesting. Now, Kevin, we could chat for hours and you, uh, you're absolutely fascinating. All those books you've read, all those experiences you've had, there's probably not a topic we couldn't have a good banter about, whether it be New Zealand rugby or whatever it might be. Let's just end with, sadly, um, a book. Among all the books that you've read, what's a good book about leadership? If it's not one of your fabulous books, which 64 Shots and Love Marks is particularly good books, but another book that you've read recently that's quite profound and is quite of our time that you think people should read. You've probably got a view that, that, I, that, I, that I searched for my inspiration in history and what went before, okay? You should, everybody who wants to be a leader should read everything Peter Drucker wrote. That's what they should do. Just start with the effective executive and work your way through. I'm talking at the global, Peter Drucker Global Forum next week in Vienna. I'm not going to Vienna, I'm talking from it virtually, right? But the whole concept of management is doing things right, leadership is doing the right things. They're all timeless, his stuff. Yes. Reread Drucker. Yes. Skim it, because yeah. it's big ideas. No, you're so right. Hey, and I got a mad one for you. Do you want a mad okay. one? A mad one? Okay. Love a mad one. A mad one, a mad one, a mad one. Um, what's it called? The Quality of Madness. Okay. And it's written by a guy called Somebody Rich. And it's the life of the savior of Leeds, oh, yeah. Marcella Bielsa. Right. That is the life of the probably the greatest soccer coach in the world, way better than Mourinho, the yeah. guide of uh, Guardiola. And he's kind of won nothing, but he's, he's a madman. And that whole quality of madness, yeah, just as a mad Yeah, thing. thank you. Well, look. Kevin, it's been an absolute joy having you on the series. Stay on and we'll have a chat after we come off our fair. But thank you very much for making time to share your wisdom and experience 
I know people will enjoy it as much as I have. Thank you so much. Jonathan, don't tear me off because I want to just say something you said to me before, which was the three hands. And you taught me about humility, humanity, and humor. And you said that that was Roger Steer. Yeah, yeah Professor Roger Steer, yeah. Those, you've just demonstrated the three hands. Thank you. Thank you. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.